You're listening to the SHL Smart Teams Podcast, a show where we invite experts on people science to talk about how to build a future where businesses thrive because their people thrive. Welcome to a special edition of SHL's Smart Teams. I'm Cosmo Leon, your host, and today we're going to be talking to Julie Stevens. And you know, life is a roller coaster, and this woman has really ridden the ride in the last couple of years. Julia is a survivor of stage four colon cancer. She's chemo resistant. She's had a tremendous story that she's inspired so many people. And today we thank you for joining us because I know you're going to be inspired. Julie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Cosmo. I'm so excited to be here today. Julie, I tell you, you found out about your disease and the tremendous challenge you had in front of you in kind of a unique way. Your family didn't have cancer history. And thank goodness you got some blood drawn. And that really started this whole process of you maximizing joy because that's your credo. And without that, we might have a different story altogether here today. I, I, absolutely, Cosmo. And in fact, choosing to live in joy versus fear has been one of the largest components of my success strategy with cancer. So certainly want to share that with everyone. But as you mentioned, I was able to identify that I have cancer through measuring my baseline data, which is something I'm pretty passionate about. I worked with my primary care physician to do and to draw up my blood annually to understand if there were any changes, because that's one of the best indicators of a larger issue. And she was able to uncover low iron late this spring, and which led me to do some additional testing, which is how I found the colon cancer to begin with, because I had zero symptoms. I have no history of colon cancer. And I'm under the recommended uh, screening age of 45. Now, when you first found out about that and told your family, your friends, all your loved ones, were they kind of shocked by this since your family didn't have any history behind it? I, I am a pretty vibrant um, and excitable person. I do a lot of really fun things. And I think the idea of cancer impacting me, I had many, many, many people call in tears saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe this is possible. This You're just too young. There's no way you're sick. But the reality is, is it is a it is a silent killer, and that's why colon cancer in the next few years will end up being the number two reason for death for many of the folks around the world because it is found so late, especially for younger folks. You never took the oh, what was me type attitude, and you went right into putting the throttle down about how to challenge and beat this. One thing I was always fascinated about with your story, Julie, is that you immediately put a team together. How are we going to do this? A team of 10. Why don't you tell the people that are listening today how you thought of the team, what you wanted the team to do, and how they were going to execute your plan? For anyone who understands industrial psychology, and clearly if you're listening to SHL, you probably have some idea about it. You know we begin with a job analysis, which is ultimately what I did around my diagnosis so that I could understand really what the implications of colon cancer are what the likely data I needed to pull was, and then how uh, it could progress and the issues it could cause in my life. I did the exact same analysis for the recommended treatment plan, which for me was a series of, of chemotherapy called oxaliplatin. And I was able to identify things like hand and foot issues would be a challenge. And so I've identified utter cream and the right gloves in order to, to solve for that. Or cold sensitivity, where I wouldn't be able to open my refrigerator without gloves or um, drink anything cold, or be outside in cold temperature. But if I iced, meaning I put my body on ice throughout the entire chemotherapy experience and had ice in my mouth the entire couple hours it was happening, I wouldn't have any of those cold sensitivity issues. 
I did the exact same thing around larger issues, around neuropathy, as an example. Acupuncture is a very great way to prevent and reduce the likelihood of neuropathy being a lifetime challenge for you. So I hired an acupuncture to be part of my team. I had uh, 61 lymph nodes removed when I had surgery. So I have a reflexologist and a massage therapist that are constantly working on lymphatic draining. So I created a 10-person care team of both Western doctors, so my oncologist, my gastro, my primary care physician, my therapist, but also other healers, people like naturopaths, which has been a really critical part of my success strategy because they've been able to help me create alchemy in my body. So it'll accept the therapy and the treatment as well as give my body every advantage to healing as well. I have chiropractors, as I mentioned, reflexologists. So I have a very broad team. Every single person is designed for a different outcome. And together, I've been able to weather this storm incredibly well. Everything from in chemo, really the only issues I had were tiredness and some taste issues. But beyond that, everything else has been pretty much smooth sailing, which as you started with, I have chemo-resistant breast of a non-operable colon cancer. It's been a pretty wild story to share. You had mentioned something there that just made me think here a second. How common is it for the average person just to pull that refrigerator open and grab something. And that for you was a journey in itself to make you feel better because you had to do certain things. You're just going to be, I'm going to grab that milk or beverage or whatever else. That's, That's exactly it. So I spoke with a dozen or so subject matter experts of people who had survived colon cancer to understand what their experience was. I joined several Facebook groups. Like I collected, I had seven weeks off between surgery and when I started chemotherapy and I did an insane amount of research. I read books. I was constantly on YouTubes. I was on different you know, patient areas trying to get as much data as I could and really build the collective wisdom of those who had ridden this path before me to make sure that I had every advantage in my toolbox. Now, with that toolbox, you had to have the trust, the faith in those people around you on that team. You have an incredible story about finding the right doctor. You almost had to lobby for that person, correct? Oh, I definitely did as much lobbying as I could. So yes, so I built, um, as I mentioned, that job analysis for each team member. And for, as an example, for my oncologist, I knew I needed someone who was willing to think outside the box, someone who was a maverick and willing to to chart a new path, someone who was low on arrogance. So they were willing to work with the larger collective team, someone that had a large amount of technical knowledge, but someone that was willing to treat the patient and not the diagnosis. And that's a pretty tall order to find a doctor that would meet all that criteria. So again, I reached out to my network and others and did some interviews with past patients of different oncologists and was able to identify two in the Atlanta area that I would even consider seeing, one that I thought was the very best person for me. When I called to get on their candidate register, they said, there's no way you're going to see this doctor, Dr. Sabo. In fact, you're going to have to see someone else on the team. And I begged the woman, told her my sob story, asked her just to put my information in the system because I was so confident that Dr. Sabo would be the one to see me. Well, I tried every trick in the book I knew from the medical facility. How nice could I be? How pleasant could I be to the administrator? Do I know any nurses? I searched LinkedIn and didn't have a ton of success there. And so I went to my network, um, who I called Team J. And Team J, I was explaining about my plight. And I think I had 10 or 15 people reach out to folks at Emory. So over the weekend, Dr. Sabo got multiple text messages begging him to accept me to his patient roster. And on Monday afternoon, when I was truly in a a pretty low moment of my story, I got a text message back that said, yes, I will see her. Now, my plan was to dress up like Sandy and go make and sing, you're the one that I want in his office. So if that strategy didn't work to use my network, I had a plan B, which was to show my freak, wave my freak flag, sure he would put me on his patient register because I really understood that he was the right doctor for me. 
because there's several patients already in play between my naturopath and oncologist already. What's the magic phrase? The squeaky wheel? My entire story is me being the squeaky wheel from the point where they told me I would we'd be able to go a couple weeks longer to do my surgery. And I was like, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to be able to wait any longer. I had to really advocate for myself to get the secondary scan, which told me that my colon was closed. I've had to advocate to switch from chemo over to immunotherapy when I was able to collect data to show that the chemo wasn't working very quickly. So my whole story has been making sure I'm just as knowledgeable as my team and using my resources to make sure that they're in the same step as I am. So you can see a whole text message thread. And yeah, my oncologist actually gave me his cell phone number. So we text back and forth pretty regularly where I was like, I think I'm chemo resistant. What data do you need to pull to confirm or, de- or deny this? And then we were able to pivot actually through text so that the next time I came in, I was able to start my new therapy. That's so awesome. Let's talk about a timetable. So you've got the team together. You went through the lobbying process with probably the guy you need to be the leader of the team. Okay. You talked about 10 different intangibles that you're working with. Just alone, I could imagine your calendar. I'm going to do this, do this, do this. Illustrate for the people listening right now how the timetable worked about getting everyone aligned on the same page and starting your process about feeling better. So I think that there are some doctors here that are designed to give you data in order to build your strategy. So for example, my primary care physician was the person that was my first leader that helped me identify the issue. She did that in May. I went to see my gastro in June. June 14th, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. That's when I began to pull in my surgeon. I began to pull in my oncologist, began to pull in my therapist. So all of those folks were aligned along the path until I got to chemotherapy to begin. Once I was starting chemotherapy, that's where I brought in the rest of my team members. So for example, I typically go for a treatment on Wednesday. I see my acupuncturist later that day. I see my chiropractor either later that day or the following day. I see my naturopath on the third day so that we can review all of the data we've collected, make some decisions and see how we're going to adjust my supplement strategy to make sure that I am getting that alchemy in my body and giving myself every advantage in this battle. And then I schedule everyone else from a massage therapist. I see my reflexology weekly. Everyone else is really designed to come together throughout the three-week cycle to make sure that my body is operating like a fine-tuned piece of machinery so that as I go back into the next cycle, I have complete lymph drainage. All my organs are, are, are functioning properly, et cetera. Now, with that team of 10, did you let everybody know, here's what you're going to do, here's what you're going to do, et cetera, et cetera, so that when everybody is aligned together to get you to feel the best you can. So like when I go to my acupuncturist, I say, okay, here are the things that I'm concerned about this week. Here's any of the data that you need to be understanding. And then ultimately, my biggest concern is neuropathy. So make sure you're constantly working to make sure my nerves are in good shape. So I give them each, I kind of give them each a job task. I actually give them each feedback. I laughed, as you can imagine, as an industrial psychologist by trade, after a week in the hospital, every single nurse and doctor got a full performance review from me. So that's part of the joy of working with me that I always give feedback on what really is working well and what we need to do to fine tune the relationship to make sure it's working in the optimal level moving forward as well. The biggest challenge for me truly has been that information share. Our electronic medical record systems is flawed in a major way that only particular doctors can have access to that, that data. So ultimately, one of the biggest challenges I've had to overcome is making sure all of my doctors have a full data set to serve them 
in the 10 to 12 minutes they have to spend with me during the scheduled time. So that's been what I've been really working hard at is constantly sharing data backwards and forwards between different electronic medical record systems or to make sure my auxiliary care providers really have the best of the best information. That being said, did anybody ever say to you when you're going through the data share, it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, were they kind of quizzical about that? Everyone kind of challenged me in the beginning until they understood what I was doing and understood the, the how the larger strategy is really playing out and start to see how I maneuver, maneuvered through the, this journey. It has been an interesting approach for sure for many of them, especially when I'm like, hey, that's not your lane. Let me talk to this doctor about this lane. But everyone, because I've been able to build a personal and professional relationship with every single one of my care providers, I have all of their cell phone numbers. We talk regularly. Like we we share, you know, I, I have a pretty fun story to tell, especially when we get to the theme parties. I'm sure that's a question that'll be coming soon. So I give each of them a care package every time so that they're part of that fun and part of the journey. And that's part of this of, you know, again, as an industrial psychologist, I understood the topic of discretionary effort and getting people to give the extra that isn't required by their job or isn't required by their performance review to really help you succeed. And my entire team really is giving me a ton of that discretionary effort and an additional harnessing everything they can to ensure my, of my success. I find this so refreshing to hear this perspective of it because you basically, with your personality and your will, to break down somebody thinking like, oh, it's the doctor and they're this way about it. And you turn that persona into a person working for your best interests. The reality is, is every single healthcare provider got into this for that exact reason. They care about health, but the work workplace that they work in doesn't allow them to focus on health. It allows them to focus on profitability, focus on time management, and focus on outcomes. But that doesn't always mean that they're focused on the patient and not the diagnosis. And so I think that's part of the criteria is selecting people in that aren't going to, my first oncologist, as an example, Cosmo, that I was assigned told me, you'll do six months of chemo and then we'll test after that. And my reaction was that doesn't follow the scientific method and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to test and learn after every single intervention to make sure this works. And I have no idea why I thought that way. I didn't even realize chemo resistance was a thing at that point. But now that I know my story, if I would have done that, my body would be, I would be going for my ne- my last chemo treatment tomorrow. My body would be filled with cancer and I would be finding out for the first time next week that I, I was not successful and I have to pivot to a new treatment. Instead, I started chemo September 14th. By October 14th, I understood it was not working. I had a full data set, so I was able to move to immunotherapy November 2nd. So that that speed and precision of gathering data, making decisions, bringing it to the team is, is one of the coolest parts of my story because I was really able to reduce all of the, the friction and the static that's part of the typical process and build precision medicine based on me. Were there some things, especially on the nutrition front, that maybe in the past you used to ingest and enjoy, now you had to make a pivot? Can you kind of... Tell us about that part of the journey. That's actually been one of the most challenging parts of the journey, and I didn't understand how important it was. So let me explain a little bit about what my naturopath shared with me. The entire part of of curing cancer is your body has to be working at the optimal levels to find and harvest the cancer and kill it. But if your body is constantly fighting against inflammation, it doesn't have the chance to really focus on cancer. And so one of the things we did was we did a very intense allergy test. Now, I've had a, a condition called chronic idiopathic urticaria for 10 years, actually for 13 years. I've been to specialists all over the world, especially in the United States, to talk about this, to get testing. This one allergy test was able to identify every single reason for inflammation, 
And for me, it's sugar, gluten, soy, green grapes, and tuna. And when I took those five things out of my body, my inflammation went down. I don't have any hives anymore. And I was able to uncover exactly what my body needed to reduce in order to focus on killing cancer. After one session of immunotherapy, one cancer spot was gone, one cancer spot had gone down two thirds, and one cancer spot had gone down three quarters. But that would have never happened if I still allowed all that inflammation to be in my body. So again, when we talk about our responsibility as the patient, our responsibility is to figure out how we create alchemy in our skin and our body so that the medicine will work and our body can fight this cancer. And if you're not doing everything you can to reduce that inflammation, you're not creating the alchemy your body needs in order to be so successful. We just talked about the physical aspects. Let's talk about 10 points that direct you mentally, spiritually, that you call maximize joy. For the people that need a mental boost dealing with any sort of illness, this is something to really focus on. Yeah. So, you know, and honestly, this is not only hasn't come to me just in cancer, but it's been over the last couple of years. Ultimately, when I realized during COVID, some people could sail through and pivot and others were really struggling and focusing on what, what they lost. I did some, some deep soul searching to understand what I could do to ensure that I was going to be as successful as possible. And what I learned is the trick to life in my book is to create joy, maximize joy build joy, be a joy bringer, enjoy your life. And so I kept coming back to this idea of joy. So when I really got to the bottom of that, I understood that the way that I sail through life is when I have equal parts, great work and great joy. And so my philosophy of life is to maximize joy, but maximizing joy, it's, it doesn't mean having fun all the time. It means expressing your potential. It means hitting the easy button. It means finding ways to make your life as simple as possible. It means finding ways to smile and bring joy to others. But I've quickly understood there's also a few other components. So things like minimizing risk. Don't put yourself in bad situations. Like minimize the risk of inflammation, creating a situation where your body can't fight the cancer. Being a good person, making sure that you are living authentic, an authentic life. Being worth knowing, so truly expressing that potential. Knowing your worth and not allowing others to talk down to you or make you feel inferior. Doing no harm, making sure that what you're doing it isn't creating challenges for others, and you're being respectful and mindful of those. Living in gratitude, I think this is a really important one. In fact, for me, when I found out I was chemo-resistant, aggressive, and had inoperable cancer, I focused on gratitude, and I wrote a glad gratitude blog every day for a month. And some days, I the only thing I was grateful for was my lava lamp. But some days, I was grateful for my medical team and my family and my support network. And by really focusing on all these different things that I was grateful for, I was able to sit in that gratitude and figure out that I had stacked my deck. I did have everything I need at my fingertips. I was going to be successful. I And to live in joy versus live in fear is the only way I want to accomplish this battle. The other three, as you mentioned, 10 are to believe. So to make sure you believe in something bigger than yourself, that knowledge is power and to constantly be looking at data and looking for trends. And energy is everything. And in fact, my biggest lesson of cancer is the only thing that is a non-renewable resource is your energy. And the only thing you actually control is how you invest your energy. And so that's something that I'm very mindful for. Is every activity I'm doing worth my time and energy? If not, pivot. Find something that is worth your time and energy. So those 10 guidelines, maximizing joy being the first one, is what's helped me sail through this experience. And there's been many situations where I've had to focus on that. In fact, the very first day at the hospital when I found out that the cancer had spread and surgery wasn't it and I would need chemotherapy, I had a really hard time with that. In fact, I couldn't stop crying. 
and couldn't stop worrying about feeling worse than I did that day. And that's a big challenge. It wasn't about what chemo, it wasn't about curing cancer. It wasn't about if I would be okay. I always knew that my body was going to help cure cancer. And I knew I was going to develop a story that was worth retelling. So I was confident in my strategy. But what I wasn't confident enough in was what I feel good. I'd worked really hard. I've lost a lot of weight. I've changed a lot of things about my body. I've done a lot of exercise and feeling good and being strong was really important to me. So that first night when I found out it had spread, I had a really hard time. I took some sleeping meds and helped help my body totally conk out. And that next morning I woke up full of joy and I realized I needed to plan a party. So that was my first theme, theme party I planned. And I invited everyone on my hospital floor to join me at five o'clock for a disco stroll. And I had really fun songs like Staying Alive, pumping on my little stereo. I took my soul pole out there and started walking. I had the best time dancing with folks. The team had a great time. Other patients had fun with me. And that was the first time that I decided not to live in fear and live in joy. And that's been a theme of my cancer experience. Well, that's a great time to pause because on our next podcast, we're going to get to the maximum joy part of the story and how Julia has inspired others with her mentality. We'll be talking parties, music, and more. Thanks for listening to the SHL Smart Teams podcast. To learn more about how SHL helps companies leverage their greatest asset, their people, please visit shl.com.